On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse to the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor." Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Suresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Suresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. This is God's word. And like I said, we have a special speaker today, someone who has spoken here a few times, who um, God's just put a call on his life to be preaching, and I'm very excited that he has a sermon to bring, and that's Dale, Dale Shank. If you would come on up, let's give him a hand. Take it away, man. You guys can hear me? Yeah. Well... I am so excited to be up here today. Um, for those of you guys who don't know who I am, my name is Dale, like Kenny said. I've, I've called New City Church my home for the past about two and a half years now, and I've had the opportunity to preach a few times. And um, It's always interesting because actually one of the last times I preached was on the book of Judges, and now we're in the book of Esther, and it seems like Kenny and Vince always kind of throw on these... Uh, these topics that aren't the easiest to preach on. So thank you. <laughs> thank you, Kenny. Actually, if you were here at the beginning of the sermon series, Kenny said um, that there are no recorded sermons uh, that were preached by, I believe it was Martin Luther and John Calvin on the book of Esther. And so those are two of the greatest theologians ever. So this should be a piece of cake for me. 
No, um, I'm praying that God speaks through me uh, this morning, and, and in my preparation for this, God had revealed some things to me, revealed some things to, to my heart in my current situation, and so I'm happy to share that with you, um, but I just wanted to say, uh, I, I just encourage you guys to read this chapter yourselves, because he might be revealing something else to you. All right, quick question. Who here loves sports bloopers besides me? Anybody? Okay. I really, I think the accidental bloopers are funny, but I prefer the ones where it leaves you saying, what the heck was that guy thinking? You know, the ones that they kind of brought it upon themselves. And there might be something behind that. I don't know if I like watching people's miseries. Um, Probably makes me feel like I'm not the only one that does dumb things. Um, all that to say, I have a video clip for you guys. Um, yeah, go ahead and watch. This is this is funny. I think it's hilarious. You guys might not. Well, there's no sound, but. Oh, there we go. So we see. So yeah, this this dude uh, from Oregon, he's running and he's so pumped up. He's telling everybody, "Come on, cheer for me, let's go!" And he has no idea what's coming. Um, so yeah, again, if you're like me, I love stuff like this. If you're like my wife, Gabrielle, I call her Gabe. So if I say Gabe, that's who I'm talking about. If you're like her, I showed her this clip and she's like, oh, that sucks. Um, but I think the guy kind of deserved it, right? That's just me. He was cocky. He was proud. Um, so I just want you guys to remember this face right here. Do you see the pure, uh, like, shock or terror? Or go, to the, go to the next one. This is good. He's like, what the heck just happened? He had no idea what was coming. So um, I promise I'm going to get back to this later. So I just want you guys to remember this and maybe think about how he felt as he's crossing the finish line and pumping people up and the guy passes him. It's, it's hilarious. I'll get to that later and we'll bring it up again. But first, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, set up the scene for where we are in chapter six. If you guys weren't here for the first five chapters, um, I just want to maybe introduce to you some of the major characters in this story. Esther, historical narrative, right? And so it's a story about uh, the, the Jews that are in Persia, right? So this was written probably about 24, 2,500 years ago. And it takes place in a, a city called Susa. And it's the capital city of Persia. And Susa is actually still a city today. It's in um, the present day Iran. So this was 100 years after the Babylonian exile. So there's still a Jewish community in this Persian city. Okay. The book starts out introducing us to a king named King Ahasuerus but he's also called Xerxes. That's his Greek name. Xerxes is much easier to say, and it's a cooler name, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep saying that. Something happens. He needs a new queen. How does he decide who's his queen? 
Well, he takes all the beautiful women, parades them through his court, and picks one. So he's impressed by a woman named Esther. And he has no idea that Esther is actually a Jew. Um, but still, she becomes queen. Esther has a cousin named Mordecai. Mordecai is actually like an adopted father to Esther. Um, not sure how that relationship kind of worked out. Maybe, maybe Mordecai's a little older. But Mordecai, he is sitting at the king's gate, overhears two of the king's eunuchs or officials, and they're plotting to assassinate King Xerxes. So because Esther is the queen, Mordecai tells Esther, Esther tells the king. Mordecai gets credit for it, and it's written down in a book called the Book of the Chronicles. Okay, so there's also a man named Haman. Haman's a bad man. He is second in command to Xerxes. (laughs) Xerxes. Also, I've, I've had really bad allergies, like, all morning. So if I'm sniffling, please excuse me. Um, okay, so Haman becomes second in command. He's at the king's gate. Everybody's bowing to him except for Mordecai. Haman's pissed. And what does he do? He says, how about this? I'm going to just annihilate all Jews, right? So he convinces the king to set up a decree or a law that later that year, all Jews are going to be annihilated, women and children included. Now, remember, Esther is a Jew, but Xerxes doesn't know. Mordecai's like, hey, you got to go talk to Xerxes to have him uh, overturn the decree. And she knew she was going to risk her life by going to the king, appearing in front of him. But bravely, she does. And the king sees her, and, and he has favor for her. And he says, Whatever you want, I'll give you anything up to half of my kingdom. And all she says was, hey, how about you and Haman come to a banquet that I prepared? And there I'll tell you. Okay, they go to the banquet and the king's like, all right, how about now? Tell me. She said, no, come to another banquet tomorrow and that's where I'll tell you. Okay, now we're all caught up. This is... um, This is right in between these two banquets is when chapter six happens. So things are tense, right? Um, The Jews are about to get annihilated. And after Haman is leaving the first banquet, he sees Mordecai again at the gate. And he's just pissed because he remembers he wouldn't bow. So he says, he goes home, talks to his wife, and his friends, and they say, go set up a, a gallows and hang him. Now, this, this isn't the same as the gallows you might be thinking of. It's not just a rope that hangs. They tell him to build a 75-foot tall stake and impale him on it. Okay, so the Jews are going to be annihilated. And before that, Haman's going to be killed. I mean, sorry, Mordecai is going to be killed by Haman. It's not looking good for God's people, right? However, throughout scripture, we're continually continually told that God is going to protect, love, serve his children, his covenant people. It doesn't matter if they're in Israel 
or if they're in Persia, doesn't matter if they're obedient or not, God loves his people and he's going to protect them. Okay, and later in Isaiah 41.10, I think we have it. God says to his people, so do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you, and I will help you, and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. See, God is faithful through his providence, supporting, preserving, and ordering all things. He gives his, his chosen people, his beloved people, special grace and protects them through the most difficult times. And we see this throughout scripture. Just read everything up to Esther. God continually provides, secures his people, even when they don't believe that he will, even when they're the most disobedient. And so a quick question for you guys, just to think over. Do you guys believe that God is faithful in supporting, preserving, ordering all things and giving you grace and, and, and protecting you? At all times? I think at first thought, I'll say, yeah, of course, right? But what about when things get hard? When things are a little messy and you start to question, God, where are you? God, why is this happening to me? Sometimes it's hard to believe. So in, in this chapter six in Esther, right, God's people, they're in Persia and they're in danger, so what is God going to do? If I had some, some dramatic music, I'd say cue dramatic music. Dun, dun, dun. God, what, what are you going to do to protect your beloved people? Yeah. Right? Things are bad. Things are a mess. They're about to get annihilated, genocide. God, what are you going to do? And chapter six is, this, is, is viewed as the most pivotal part of the book of Esther. This is when things turn around. Okay, the plot is moving and it's at the perfect time. Okay, let's check it out. I'm gonna, this is like story time, okay? I titled this message, Sleepless in Susa. Now, I've never seen the movie Sleepless in Seattle, but I guarantee you Esther 6 is better than that movie. <laughs> I guarantee it. Okay, so as Kenny read, the story begins with Xerxes not being able to sleep. Now, the Hebrew literally translates as the sleep of the king fled from him. I'm not sure. Maybe this was after that first banquet. Maybe he had some coffee. Maybe he ate something and just couldn't sleep. But we're never told why he couldn't sleep. Now, he had a lot of responsibilities. He had a vast kingdom. Probably had a lot on his mind. Maybe it was insomnia. Maybe it was just a coincidence. But he could have counted sheep, right? He had wives and concubines that he could have called upon. He had, uh, I mean, in his whole kingdom, he could have called any musician to come and serenade him to sleep. I was, I was thinking about it on, uh, I think it was Thursday night. Gabe and I laid down to go to bed, and she started talking about the Kardashian family. I don't think I've ever fallen asleep faster than that. <laughs> so maybe Xerxes just needed to hear about how, uh, what's her name, Kylie Kardashian is doing. 
<laughs> I don't know. It's exhilarating stuff right there. <laughs> so the king can't sleep. He's wide awake, and he says to his servant, hey, bring me, pretty much bring me all of the legal accountings of my kingdom. I don't know if it was because he was trying to catch up on work. Maybe he was trying to um, just bore himself to sleep. But this, is, this book that he calls for is called the Book of Chronicles, also the Book of Remembrances. So this is a book that talks about lands that were conquered, battles won, notable deeds that had happened in his kingdom. But what was read to him actually kept the king awake. And it was the story of Mordecai, like I mentioned earlier, um, spoiling the assassination attempt on the king. Remember when he, he overheard the eunuchs? And so the king is like, oh my gosh, like, I totally forgot about that. Did we ever honor that guy? He says, what honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? Imagine him saying like, hey, did we ever do anything for that dude? And his servant's like, mm, no, I don't think so. <laughs> Two quick things. In this culture, this Persian culture, it's completely driven by honor and shame, right? And receiving honor from the king is one of the, the most high things, the, the best things that could ever happen to you, okay? Also, the king wants to make sure to recognize people who save his life. Why? Because in the future, if there's an assassination attempt, who's going to stop it if they aren't going to get recognized, right? They, they would risk their life for nothing. So it's customary, Mordecai should have been honored. Actually, Xerxes' brother, there was an assassination attempt on him, and the guy that spoiled that plan became a governor. Okay, so he, Mordecai should have been honored, and he wasn't, and this troubled uh, Xerxes. So he wanted to honor him. What a coincidence, right? What incredible timing. If you remember, Haman is about to kill Mordecai. He, he's currently constructing a gallows, 75-foot-tall spike to put Mordecai on. But yet, here the king is, and he wants to honor Mordecai. It's incredible timing. What a coincidence. All right. So then Xerxes is like, hey, tell me who's in the court. Because throughout Xerxes' reign, he needed help. Um, he wasn't a very good king. He always was looking for the official's help. Um, so he's like, hey, who's in the court? I need help figuring out how to honor Mordecai. And the, and the servant says, hey, Haman's in the court. Well, why is Haman in the court? Because he just finished building this pole and he wants to go tell Xerxes, hey, let's kill Mordecai. And so he walks in. All right, let's pause. We'll get back to the story. So with the, the knowledge in mind, that Mordecai is going to be killed, but he's going to be honored by the king. This seems like a very fortunate series of events, right? Or just a bunch of coincidences. Well, not really, okay? Um, this is one of my major points today. God is at work even in the little things. Even in the most minute details, God always has his hand in our lives. So the king can't sleep that's just random. No, it was God, right? He asked for the book of remembrances. Well, I mean, it was boring. He just wanted to fall asleep. No, God, 
out of the, this massive book of things that has happened in the kingdom, the servant turns to the page that talks about Mordecai saving the king. That's a simple coincidence. No, no, it's God. And at the, the, an odd time where Xerxes needs help, this is early, late, late night or early, early morning. Nobody should be in the court. Why is anybody in the court? But Haman is in the court. That's just good timing. No, no, it's God. You guys see what's going on? Okay, God sometimes works in, in powerful ways where he has these miracles that are visible to us and it's easy to see God at work. But sometimes, actually most of the time, God works through his invisible hand of providence. And this is a major theme in, in the whole book of Esther. It's God is at work. Okay, Kenny said it before, but I'll repeat it. God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. An angel never appears to anybody in Esther. There's not a prophet that's speaking in Esther. There's not a major miracle that happens in Esther. So how do we see God in this book? And it's through providence. Let me, let me define providence real quick. There's three things. One, providence refers to God's preservation of creation. Okay. Two, God's cooperation with everything that happens. And I say cooperation because humans are still responsible for their actions. Keep that in mind. And also God's providence refers to his guiding of the universe. The word providence doesn't show up in scripture at all, but it's traditionally recognized as God's special, ongoing, continual relationship with his creation. Providence is the invisible hand of God. We don't see it, but we see the effects of God's hand in our lives. Um, let me give an example. If it's a windy day, you guys visibly see the wind? No, but we see the effects of the wind. We see trees blowing, leaves, or tumbleweeds, whatever. We, see the, we don't see the wind, we see the effects of the wind. And it's the same with God's providence. The invisible hand of God is causing things to happen and we see its effects. God is sovereign, meaning he's reigning over everything. He's causing these things to happen and we see its effects. Kenny was talking last week about God's sovereignty and I'm gonna quote it actually. Kenny said, we're all called to trust in God's sovereignty. Sovereignty means that he reigns sovereignly. He is on the throne. Bad things happen, but God is a redeemer. God is not out of control, but God is in control. God is in control, and you know how we can, how we can prove that? It's through God's providence. Now, I've said the word coincidence a few times. I don't know if you guys have heard me, uh, but I did that on purpose. Coincidence is, let's say, the non-believer's word for providence. We don't know the future, but God does. We weren't created to know the future. So what does this mean for us? If we don't know the future, God does. What is God asking us to do? God is asking us to trust him every single day. God wants us to trust in him. And like he says in Romans 8, 
He wants us to trust in him to work together all things for those who love him. God deserves our trust, and he's proven that over and over and over. Here's the thing. Don't question God's providence, but assume it. Don't question that God is sovereign. Don't question that God is good. Don't question that he knows the future and that he's at work. Just assume it. Be confident in that fact. How, let me ask this question. How differently would we live our lives every day if we're walking in absolute confidence that God is working things out for us, even in the smallest detail? How differently would we live our lives if we are confident in the fact that God is on our side and he's working things out in our lives? See, faith is trusting in the presence and providence of God before we even see it. When I was preparing for this sermon, um, again, there's no reference of God in here. I was kind of freaking out, to be honest. Like, how am I supposed to preach a sermon about a passage that doesn't even reference God? I don't see God directly directly working in this passage. What the heck am I supposed to do? <laughs> well, that's exactly what faith is, like I said. We don't see God. We don't hear his voice all the time. We don't feel the presence of God all the time but we see the effects of God working in our lives. So if we see the effects of God working in our lives, sometimes we don't, but if we see the effects of God working in our lives, why is it so hard to trust God with the future? We see it over and over again in scripture. Like I said, God continually delivers his people out of troubles, right? It makes no sense, and I'm the biggest culprit of this. Sometimes I have a hard time trusting God with my future. Uh, I don't know. I'm going to do it. Um, I'm about to get personal and vulnerable right now. Uh, These past couple weeks have just been a doozy for me. Uh, I don't know exactly what's going on, but I think I have an idea. But... I've been just emotionally a wreck. Uh, I believe that it has to do uh, with me having a plan for my life, a plan for uh, a timing of things to work out in my life and what it all looks like, and God having a different plan. For those of you guys who don't really know me, I, um, I, I want to be a pastor I want to be in vocational ministry. I feel a call from God um, to be in vocational ministry. But timing-wise, things just are a little different than my plan. And and it's just thrown me off. On Monday, I, I told Gabe that I just wanted to give up on vocational ministry. I was like, I'm I'm done. This isn't working out. I currently work in the biotech industry. I I do chemistry, and I can't stand what I do. But I told her, I'm done with vocational ministry. I'm just going to be in biotech for the rest of my life. I was freaking out. 
I, could, I just completely freaked, freaked out. It was irrational, irrational, Ir, irrational, <laughs> irrational. <laughs> Why? Why did I freak out? It's because I, I was believing in my heart that my plans are better than God's. I was believing that I knew what was right for my life, and I wasn't trusting that he knew what was best for my life. I'm holding on so tightly to my plans and not letting it go. I've been struggling with it probably the past probably six months, really. It's been off, but the last couple of weeks have been um, just been a mess. God, where are you? I'm trying to honor you. I'm trying to give you glory. How come this isn't working out? This whole time, I've just been questioning God's providence. I've been questioning if he's actually even working in my life. In these moments, we just have to pause. And we have to trust him, right? We have, to, we have to pause, and even if it's hard to trust him, maybe we need to look back on our lives and just figure out where God's hand has been evident, even in the little tiny details like this passage. I can look back on my life and confidently say that God's hand has been in my life, but yet I'm still struggling to believe. So that's why preparing for this, pass, this sermon has been excellent. For me personally, right? In my situation, I'm struggling with trusting God and his plans, but I sit here and I'm like, okay, well, I'm, I'm gonna preach about it, and I gotta, I gotta figure this out. So what do I do? I stopped, and, and I looked back onto my life, and I... I figured out where God's hand was in my life. Let me give you an example. Uh, out of high school, I wanted to go away from San Diego to go to college. I'm not sure why. This is the greatest city of all time. <laughs> I really, 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 really wanted to go to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. And I had good grades. I had good test scores. Um, I was pretty confident that I would get in, but I applied as a mechanical engineer major. And at the time, Cal Poly was the number three school in the nation for mechanical engineering, but I still thought I'd get in for some weird reason. Um, I didn't end up getting in to that college. And uh, even though I was accepted to other schools out of San Diego, I just decided I was gonna go to San Diego State for mechanical engineering. Well, after the first semester at San Diego State, I changed my major to chemistry. And if I had applied to Cal Poly as a chemistry major, I would have went in. I would have gotten accepted. Anyways, I stayed here, stayed in San Diego, and a year into college, my mom was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And a year after that, my mom passed away from stage four cancer. What if I got accepted to Cal Poly? What if I went to, went to one of the other schools I got accepted to? If I wasn't here in San Diego, I wouldn't have been there as she's going through chemo. And at the time, my mom was the most important person in my life. Um, I wouldn't have been there as she's going through chemo. I wouldn't have got to spend the quality time I did with her. I wouldn't have been there at hospice as she's, um, you know, as she's passing. And it's... <laughs> It was really hard. 
uh, at the time, I was saying, God, where are you? God, where are you? Um, I felt the most distant from God that I ever have. And yet God was still working in that situation. I also wouldn't have met my beautiful wife if I went away to college. But you see, God knew what was best for my life. I wanted to go away so bad, but it didn't happen. Why? Because God. It's God's providence, God's hand in my life. Even when I don't want to trust him, even when I don't believe that he's working things out, he still does. He loves us, and he wants to protect us always. We are his children, and he wants to see us thrive and fulfill his purpose. That's the main, that's the main thing about God's providence. It isn't so we feel good, so we're successful, wealthy. That's what the prosperity gospels teach, right? Any gospel, well, and, and you know what? Like, we're not always going to be happy, successful, and wealthy. So then if the prosperity gospels teach that, then they're, then they're saying, okay, God's providence is for the few. This gospel is for the few. Any gospel that's for the few isn't true because Jesus Christ's gospel is for everybody. God wants us to succeed. He wants us to, to do well. But why? Not for our gain. For his purposes. For his redeeming work. That's why he, he's, his hand is in our lives to shape us and mold us in order for us to, to serve his purposes. God's a redeemer, like Kenny said last week. God is a redeemer, and he wants us to be a part of that redeeming work. That's why his hands are in the little details in our lives. Okay, I don't know if that was heavy or not, but this is about to get a little lighter. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on to the rest of the passage. Um, this is juicy stuff. Like I said, Sleepless in Seattle has nothing on this. So Haman finishes his spike that he's about to kill Mordecai on, and he's walking into the court, right? Uh, Xerxes is like, hey, bring Haman into my, into my quarters. I want to talk to him. And the reason why Haman was there in the first place is because he needed uh, Xerxes' permission to kill Mordecai. But before he could even say anything, Xerxes is like, what should be done to the man who the king delights to honor? He wasn't even able to talk about killing Mordecai. Xerxes is like, we need to honor somebody. What should we do? Haman's like, you know, who, who else is the king going to honor? Like, I'm the one he wants to honor for sure. Best day ever, right? Haman's walking in. He's, I'm going to kill Mordecai the Jew, and I'm going to get honored by the king. And Mordecai, Haman goes, well, you know, that one person that you want to honor, I think, I think I might know, wink, wink, I think I might know what that person wants. And so Haman goes, for the man who the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought. And I, I, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to kind of paraphrase this. This is what I think Haman's saying. He's like, you know, King, it's a cool robe you got on. I think the person would want to wear that and parade around the city like you do. 
oh, and also, you know that horse that you ride on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This person you want to honor definitely wants to ride on that horse. <laughs> oh, oh, and that crown that you wear, for sure. Yeah, he wants to wear that. He wants to be high and exalted, paraded around the city like you do. Can you picture that? Parading around the city like a king? I for sure think that person you want to honor would like that, right? Haman, do you see a bit of arrogance in this guy? This is a bit of pride. It wasn't even directed towards him, but he thinks the king wants to honor him. He's thinking that Xerxes is asking him, hey, what do you want? And he says, a parade for me, right? Oh, good idea, good idea, the king says. Okay, we're gonna have one of my highest officials take these robes, bring it down to the men who I want to honor and dress him up, parade him around the city, Haman is so stoked at this point. He's like, cool, I'm going to get honored right now. And just like this track runner from Oregon that I showed you in the clip earlier, he's so pumped. Pump right now he's pumping up the crowd like that guy. He's like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. But before we know it, Xerxes goes, all right, we have to do this right now, this moment, take these robes and the horse and the crown, just like you said, and go do it to Mordecai the Jew. Check that out. He's like, what? <laughs> go to the next one. He's like, are you kidding me? There's just so much pride. He's like pumping him up. And he's like, why couldn't you have told me that you were going to honor Mordecai in the first place? Things would have been, would have went a little different, I think. He went to the king's court to have Mordecai killed. And now he has to parade Mordecai around and honor him. Oh, the irony, right? God has humor. This is hilarious. God was probably saying to his angels like, hey, check this out. Watch this. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. So Xerxes is like, all right, leave nothing you set out. Everything you just said, do it up. Let's honor the heck out of this dude. So get the horse and take it down there. So Haman had to go up, swallow his pride. Actually, he was probably pretty reluctant doing it. He had to go up and say, uh, hey, Mordecai, um, king wants to honor you. Here's a robe. All right, get up on the horse, and here's a crown. Yay, Mordecai. <laughs> in, verse, in verse 11 of uh, chapter 6, it says, so Haman took the robes and the horse and dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man who the king delights to honor. He woke up intending to kill Mordecai. Now he's saying, yay, Mordecai. What a day, huh? He simply assumed the king was talking about him, but it ended up biting him in the behind. So, for this passage, I, I, I just want to briefly, and I say briefly, talk about um, pride and humility. So just like this Oregon runner that I showed, Haman's head at this point was so big, so full of pride and so full of um, conceit, but he had no idea what was coming. He was completely blindsided when Xerxes told him it was all for Mordecai. Now, let's talk about Mordecai. Think of the humility that Mordecai showed and that it's customary 
to be honored by the king if you save his life. But not once did he ever even say to Esther or anything, hey, I saved the king's life. I need to be honored. And as funny as this story is, we're laughing at Haman's expense. I'll be the first to tell you that I have been Haman so many times. What I told you earlier about me having a plan and things aren't going according to my plan, and it's affecting my emotional life, well, that's because of my pride. In my heart, I'm believing that my pride or my plan is better than God's plan. And I'm not trusting that what he has in store for me and what he is doing in my life is best. I'm not saying we're all exactly like Haman, but our pride kind of shows up a little differently. Some of us want material things, power, comfort, an audience, um, a higher position. But pride is all about my glory, our glory. Humility is always about God's glory. And just like God's providential work, God's hand in our life, it isn't for our glory. He's not working things out so we can have glory. He's working things out so he can have glory. Working things out for his purposes, his redemptive purposes, like I said. Uh, okay. Why the heck am I talking about pride and providence? These, these things don't really, uh, I'd say, mix. But let's check it out. In James chapter 4, verse 13 through 16, it says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. A humble person agrees and is glad that every beat of their heart is from God, governed by God, and his heart will only keep beating if God wills it. Instead of saying, hey, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that, like it says in James, we ought to be saying, if the Lord wills it, I'm going to do it or not, right? Humble people love to say that. Humble people don't want to be in charge because they know it's better when God is in charge and God is working in their lives. See, that's how pride and, and providence mix. See, when we're prideful, we can't see the hand of God in our lives because we're so, um, we're so built up and so puffed up. And we think that what God is doing in our lives is because of what we've done. But when we're humble, we, we already know that God is working this out for his purposes. And we say, Lord, use me, right? Mighty God is in control. Even if I think I'm in control, I'm not. So to finish out uh, chapter six, the rest of the story goes and tells uh, us about Haman. After he honored Mordecai, he runs home to his friends and his wife, just like he did earlier in Esther, no, actually in chapter five. And, it's a, and, and we see a reversal because in chapter five, verse 14, it says, 
His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up reaching a height of 50 cubits and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. But here, the end of chapter six, after they saw Mordecai being honored and Haman actually told them everything that had happened, here's what they say. Since Mordecai, before before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. What happened? How come such a quick reversal? Maybe they just came to the realization that God is at work and God is a redeemer and God is going to protect his people. God is always going to pursue and protect his people. Haman goes on to the second banquet. I don't want to give anything away for next week, but it's not going to be good. No, his downfall has started. The book of Esther, again, is an excellent example of God protecting his beloved children. So this story in Esther isn't the only story in the Bible about God's providence and delivering his people. There's this one story in the New Testament not sure if you guys have ever heard of it, but it's a, uh, about a man named Jesus Christ. So God's children in general were in trouble, right? They're distant from him. They need to be reconciled to him. God had a plan. He always does. And it's always the perfect plan. Let's check it out. God's providence works itself out in the life of Christ. He lived a perfect life, resisted temptation. He, um, the magistrates, they, they could have let Jesus go instead of the criminal Barabbas, right? But instead, Jesus was crucified. At his death, God's children were saved. We were saved because of God's providence. What if Pontius Pilate said, you know what? I'm, gonna, I'm not even gonna listen to them. Jesus, you can go. It would have been different. Things would have been different in the redemptive story of God. But God's providence is always working things out. God's plan is always perfect. There was one way and only one way that we as God's children could be reconciled to him. And what happened? That one exact plan, God worked it out perfectly. It's easy for us to look back onto, say, uh, Jesus's life and say, okay, God was working in that, those stories in, in Jesus's life in that moment of time. Jesus just died. What about his disciples? His disciples were probably asking, God, where are you? Our Messiah just died. Why? Why, God? They were completely broken They were probably concerned about their future. (laughs) Things were a mess. Things were not okay. Even though Jesus had told them over and over and over and over, this is what's going to happen and it's going to be good for you. The Holy Spirit's going to come and it's going to be better for you. And the disciples, they still were so concerned and worried about their future. See, they had to visibly see Christ resurrected in front of them for them to finally believe that that God is in control and that God is working things out. So what about Jesus, right? He's here. Do you think he trusted what God was doing? 
He knew he had to die. He knew that was the only way. And yet, what did he do? He humbly went to the cross. He said, God, I trust you and I trust your plans. This is what's supposed to happen. Paul, in his letter to the church at Galatia, real quick, he he tells them that he will continue to feel pain for them until Christ is formed in you. Christ is formed in them. See, that's what God desires. He wants us to be more and more like Christ every day. And if we're thinking of this in terms of trusting God, right? If we're more and more like Christ, Christ was completely um, just humble and, and willing to trust God with everything. So what about us? We haven't seen the physical risen Christ like the disciples. Sometimes it may be hard for us to believe that God is working things out. Sometimes it may be hard for us to see God's hand in our lives. Jesus said, Father, your will is perfect. I trust you. Christ died for every time that we struggle to believe. I struggle all the time to believe that God is working in my life and and I'll be okay in the future. I struggle to believe that my plan is inferior to God's plan. But Christ says, through his death and resurrection, look what I've done for you. I love you. I know you're not always going to believe that I'm in control, but I am. My plans are perfect. Remember this. The evidence is there. Just read, read throughout scripture. God remains the same and he never changes. So with that in mind, if God has always delivered his people, if God has always had his hands in, in people's lives, if he never changes, why, why would he change in the future? He's always going to be in control. He's always going to do what's best for us. God remains the same. He never changes. Um, real quick, the worship team, I'm, I'm just about done. You guys could head up here. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Earlier, they sang the song, give me faith. That's my prayer. Father, give me faith to trust what you say. Father, give me faith that you're, that you're good. God, your, your love is great. I'm so broken inside. God, I just give you my life. I'm struggling. I'm struggling to believe that you're in control. Just give me faith because you are good. Something I challenge you guys to do um, maybe this week or just in the future. Every time you're struggling to believe, just start journaling. Just write stuff down, pray, think about your past. But when you start journaling, it's cool because maybe a year from now, you can go back and look at what you wrote. And and that's concrete evidence. You will see God's hand working in your life just from a year prior. You can see all the times that God's providence is evident. If that isn't enough, just look at the big picture. Just look at the story of God. Look at the cross. Look what the gospel does for us. Look how perfect God's plans are through the cross. He's got you. He has us. He loves us, and he's going to fight for us because we're his children. 
He would go to any lengths to do so, even if it means sending his son to die on the cross for us. That's how much he loves us. That's how much he cares for us. Assume the providence of God. Don't question it. Be confident in the providence of God. The evidence is there. God's redemptive work that he wants us to be a part of, God's redemptive work will not be toppled. It never has, and it never will. So in times um, when things are hard, I pray that we have patience. In times where we say, God, where are you? Maybe there's some pride in, in the way. Maybe we need to repent of some pride. In times where we're successful or prosperous, I pray that we remain thankful. <laughs> I pray that we don't, um, our heads don't get too big and we don't fill up with pride for what God has done and that we continue, continually remember that it was God in the first place and give him the glory And for the future, I pray that we have full confidence in our faithful Father and nothing will separate us from his love for us. He has proved it. Only then are we going to have peace. Um, I'll finish with a simple quote. It is Charles Spurgeon. He says, God has great things in store for his people. They ought to have large expectations. Expect God's providence. Don't don't, uh, don't question it. It's nice to know that the creator of this entire universe is on our side and he has his hand in our lives. Isn't that comforting? So the band is going to play a few more songs. Um, I just want to encourage you guys to take this time to respond to um, God's love for us, right? I want to say that like I mentioned, Christ death and resurrection is the ultimate reminder that he has his hand in our lives. There was only one way for us to be reconciled to him, and that was through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that's what the the, the crackers and the juice represent. It's a reminder that God's in control, and he will go to great depths to prove that. Great depths, his son, He sent his son to die for us. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. His body was broken. His blood was shed so we could be reconciled. It was God's perfect plan. Let me pray. Father, we we thank you. We thank you first for sending Christ to, to, to reconcile us to you. Thank you for this reminder that you always, always, always have your hand in our lives, and it's what is best for us. God, help us in the times where we think our plans are better than yours. Humble us, Lord. God, we pray that you you will uh, use us for your purposes. God, we know you will. That's why you're working things out in our lives. That's why your, your providence is so perfect because it's for your plans, your purposes. Our plans are flawed. Yours are perfect. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.